0: Well, as promised, today we begin a study of the book of Micah. And so I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Micah follows Jonah, and it immediately precedes Nahum. So Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Those three books of the Bible, incidentally, are the three books of the Bible that have the nation of Assyria as the existential threat looming in the background. In the case of Jonah, it's concerning the salvation, the, the offer of salvation to Nineveh. Concerning Nahum, which is the last of the three books, it, it considers the judgment and destruction of Assyria, Uh, But Micah in the middle just has Assyria as in the background as the threat, the the instrument of God's judgment upon the people. So taken together, these three books are like chronicles of Assyria, so to speak. Uh, But let's go ahead and let's consider what the Lord says to us through his prophet, Micah, chapter 1, verses 1. Through 16. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel." What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And Bethle arphrah roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The Lamentation of Beth. Easel shall take away from you its standing place, for the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lagish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel." Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mareshath. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Brothers and sisters, even this is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for granting that it should be preserved for us and we ask that you would bless our reading and study of it grant O Lord that whatever I say that is not in accordance with these words would be quickly lost from memory but that which is in accordance would resonate with your people we ask this in Jesus name Amen so Micah The name Micah means, who is like the Lord? Who is like Yahweh? And that's the question that this book will leave you with at the end. Who? Who among the gods? Who among creation is like the Lord our God? The name Micah was apparently a relatively common name back in the day, Because there's no less than 14 people in the Bible who share the name. So it's pretty common. This Micah, though, provides us some unique details in his opening verse. uh, Very helpful details. Many of the prophets don't say anything biographically. So we kind of are left guessing as to who and where and what. But not Micah. Not Micah of Moresheth. He, He was a prophet who hailed from a small town about 22, 23 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He's from the country. You would say he's a hillbilly. And he had a ministry that spanned the reigns of three southern kings of Judah and scholars piecing together the timeline. This means he had a ministry of approximately 50 years. Now, A 50-year ministry, and he left us with a book of seven chapters. So I'm not sure he was preaching every day, but that's where his ministry extended. And he was a contemporary of Isaiah. In fact, many people would say that Micah is a sort of summary shorthand form of Isaiah because a great many of the themes that are initially spelled out here in Micah are developed and expanded upon in Isaiah. So that's an interesting bit of trivia there for you. But in this opening chapter here, we get to see a unique picture of what inspiration looks like. Have you ever wondered what it's like, what it must have been like to have been a prophet or something? How does inspiration work? Does it mean the person is sitting there and all of a sudden they're kind of possessed and, they, and their eyes roll back in their head and they just, I, I'm oftentimes amazed when it says the word of the Lord that came to Micah. And, and, and this has got to be right off the bat what you think about and understand. What he says here, he didn't come up with himself. This this word of prophecy did not originate with with, with Micah. He he didn't observe the world around him and just have righteous indignation and decide to say something. No, this message came from God. It was laid upon his heart and, and it put him in a perilous position. Oftentimes, the prophets are in very perilous positions because God calls them to say the things nobody wants to hear at precisely the time no one wants to hear it. For example, he ministers during the reign of Hezekiah. Okay, now what he says, what Micah says about Assyria destroying Destroying Israel, that, that came to pass in, in 722, about 11 years into his ministry. By the time Hezekiah's rolled around, though, Judah had been reduced to a tributary state. You know what that means? It means Assyria basically left them alone as long as every year they sent off a bunch of gold. And, my, and, and Hezekiah, perhaps wisely Decides not to rock the boat with that situation when he first becomes king and he keeps paying the tribute, but then eventually he gets sick of it and he stops paying the tribute. And that's when Assyria rolls into town. And you can read in 2 Kings chapter 18 the Assyrian army pretty much destroyed Judah. They're at the very gates of Jerusalem. Imagine if you would that the Chinese somehow overwhelm our Pacific Fleet and they somehow get a landing on the West Coast and and they're sweeping across, destroying everything across this country. And imagine if in that moment a guy stands up and says, You are all going to die. You're not going to look, oh, he's a national hero. It's considered treason. Okay? So understand that when guys like Micah have a burden placed on their heart from the Lord, he wasn't jolly about it. We we see Jeremiah becomes almost suicidally depressed because they're called to say the things that no one wants to hear at precisely the time no one wants to hear it but he's God's man. And faithfulness for any of us oftentimes looks like doing the thing we don't want to do that no one else wants to have done when it needs to be done. So it's a picture of faithfulness there, but but notice his, I said this was about inspiration. The message came from the Lord. But yet it does not obliterate Micah's personality. You see, Micah was a country boy. And we often see in this book the perspective of a country boy where he's able to look at the big city and all of its problems with with, a, with an eye that's a country eye. And, and we know that he was very witty because it's even though it's totally lost in English, that list of towns that we went through in chapter one, okay, you y- The the name, the pronunciation of the town is kind of intact in English. But what's totally lost is that for every corresponding town, for every town, he lists a corresponding verb in Hebrew that phonetically sounds like the town. So the judgment that's coming upon the town, he uses a phonetically similar word for alliterative purposes, Clever, witty, memorable. So we see a picture of inspiration here, how the message, the burden, the words have their origination from God, but they come through the filter and sieve that is the man in his perspective, in his personality. And what we have here is every word that God wanted said. And it's true across scripture, where the author's personality was not obliterated, but rather it was the instrument and the means by which God's message was delivered and recorded for God's people across time. Incidentally, I said that his message, his oracle here in in verse 6 about Samaria came true 11 years into his ministry in 722 About 100 years after his death in 586, Babylon does indeed send Judah off to exile. And we could actually credit Micah, perhaps, with saving Jeremiah's life. You see, a century later, Micah's dead and buried. A century later, in uh, Jeremiah 26... Jeremiah has yet another run-in with the people. He's prophesying the impending destruction. And in, and in verse 18, 26, verse 18 of Jeremiah, they're getting ready to kill him for treason. And the treason charge is he's preaching the impending destruction, precisely when there's, there's bad guys out there. And you know, if you deliver a message, hey, whoever goes out will be saved, but whoever stays will be, will be destroyed. That sounds like, like you're being an agent of the enemy. And they're getting ready to stone him. But some elders of the land say, you know what? Hold on. A hundred years ago, Micah said the same thing. And what did Hezekiah do? He didn't kill him he repented and led to the preservation of Israel. So what Jeremiah 26 shows us is not only was the example of Hezekiah's relationship to Micah instrumental in preserving Jeremiah's life, we see that Micah's ministry was instrumental in Hezekiah's famous repentance, his famous reforms. You see that alongside Isaiah Micah's ministry was the means by which God preserved his people. And so take note of that. It is great that we have the Isaiahs of the Bible, the guys who have the ear of the king, who have a place in the political establishment. Isaiah was a high-ranking person, so to speak. Then you had the hillbilly prophet, And they were both instrumental. God calls and God uses whom he will. Do not think that your place in your position has any bearing on your utility. Do not think that God certainly can't use you because he very well may. It is your job, brother and sister, Friend, to simply be obedient when the burden comes and leave the fruit to God. It is he alone who determines what is and is not the acceptable outcome. Your job is simply to be obedient. Now, when you look at the book of Micah that he wrote, he answered the call of God Inerrancy and inspiration meant that the message came to him and through him, but it did not obliterate his personality. Rather, it makes use of his personality. We see that he's instrumental in changing the king's heart and preserving his people for a hundred years. But the book itself is seven chapters long, and aside from the opening verse, the book consists of three oracles, The first oracle begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and it begins with a summons to hear. Hear! And this oracle runs through the end of chapter 2. The second oracle begins at chapter 3, verse 1, and it also begins with a summons to hear. And it runs through the end of chapter 5. The third oracle begins at the beginning of chapter 6. And it begins with a summons to, guess what? To hear. And it runs through the end of the book. And each of these three oracles follows the same pattern. An indictment, pronouncement of judgment, but then the promise of hope. Each of the three oracles follows that same pattern. And interestingly... The book of Micah is the sixth book in the English ordering of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. It's the middle book. And if you count up the number of verses, the central verse, the center verse of the minor prophets is Micah 3.12. And Micah 3.12 is in itself a pretty apt summary of the message of the whole Minor Prophets, which is this. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, that is the temple, shall be a wooded height. That's an apt summary of the Minor Prophets. I've just said that Micah's oracle is... Micah's book is three oracles that follow a cycle. Each cycle has hope in it. Now, what we do is we focus on hope. But if we're going to put the emphasis where the scriptures put the emphasis, we have to be honest that the minor prophet's emphasis is not hope. The minor prophet's emphasis is on judgment. And it's for that reason that the minor prophets are very often ignored, except for the select passages about hope that we pull out and comfort ourselves with. Why are the minor prophets such downers? Why are they so judgy? Why are they so dark? Well, it's, it's vitally important, brothers and sisters, that when you read the prophets in general, but especially the minor prophets, it's absolutely imperative that you read it through the lens of the covenant. Keeping God's covenant in view is vitally important. It is the key to understanding what is happening in the prophets. Specifically, Think back to the book of Exodus. That's where the covenant is made. In Exodus chapter 19, four to six, please write that down and and, and it's it's vitally important. God says to Moses and he extends to Moses the, the invitation, so to speak, the offer of a covenant, of a national covenant. And he says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. And Moses speaks the words and the people agree. Yes, whatever you say, O Lord, we will do. And so they go through this big covenant ratification ceremony and the covenant is ratified and confirmed in Exodus chapter 24. Specifically verses 7 and 8, Moses takes the book of the covenant that he's written or that God has written, I should say, and he reads it to the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, because he'd previously sacrificed an animal, and take, he put half the blood uh, in the altar and half the blood in a bin, and he, but he takes the blood and he throws it on the people. They are baptized in blood, so to speak, And he says, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then fast forward several years to the end of their 40 year wandering in Deuteronomy 28, that's another important chapter. Moses is repeating, he's about to die. He's an old man, he's about to go and the people are poised to enter the promised land and he erects competing Uh, He has competing groups of priests on top of the mountains. And as they pass through, they're proclaiming blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. So blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So Exodus 28, sorry, Deuteronomy 28 enumerates a number of blessings that God would bring to the people if they followed the covenant. And then a number of curses... Judgments that would befall them if they disobeyed. So, Deuteronomy 28 provides the, the judicial basis for pretty much the entire ministry of the prophets as they serve as God's covenant prosecutors. We saw even in Micah chapter one that the Lord is calling witnesses to gather around, so to speak. This is a, a courtroom of sorts where all their offenses are gonna be enumerated and then the corresponding judgments will be handed out. All of this is in keeping with Deuteronomy 28. Nothing is just made up on the fly. Deuteronomy 28 spells it out. And the Lord is merciful The ministry of the minor prophets covers centuries, brothers and sisters. Because even though the Lord enumerated judgments that would befall the people, the Lord is gracious, kind, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, delighting in showing mercy. He relents of destruction. But a holy God cannot overlook sin and rebellion forever. And so when you read the Minor Prophets, you're reading a covenant prosecution of centuries of infidelity. But when we read the Minor Prophets, when we read the Prophets and we see all the injustices enumerated, we run a great risk. You see, we hear about Poor people being oppressed, rich people taking, using the legal system. And and what we do is we we read in this, this passage the language of a political nation state. And what Christians are tempted to do is read these books or read their own political national context back into the books so we identify all the problems out there And we think this book is preaching against all the wickedness in the world around us. Whether that world is the USA or whether that world is England or Germany or whatever. We are tempted to see the nation as being our nation when in fact the nation of Israel as a covenant people corresponds to the church. When you read the prophets, the Lord does indeed make demands of the nations. And the Lord indeed does judge the nations for their iniquity. But the Lord hammers home his people and their requirement to be holy. Why? Because they are his by covenant. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, a truth that is true in the Old Testament as well, that is judgment begins with the household of God. And to understand that, you have to go back to the whole purpose of a people and a kingdom. When the Lord tells Moses that the people would be his holy people among all the earth, there's a missiological purpose in that. Mankind was created to have unfettered relationship with God. But man fell. Man chose the wrong. And ever since then, mankind has been living in wanton open rebellion, chasing after idols innumerable. And the Lord has injected his kingdom into this world. And he wants his people then to reflect the values of the heavenly kingdom, to reflect their God, to reflect creation as it was meant to be. And so when God's people refused to live in accordance with the covenant, they besmirched the name of the Lord. And they make his kingdom appear to be burdensome and ugly rather than beautiful and perfect. So, there are five things that I want you to keep in mind in light of the fact that this book is a covenant prosecution. And this book, we're going to see address a whole host of issues The first thing that you have to bear in mind when you see God get so angry, so to speak, about things, the first thing you need to bear in mind is that for God's people, religious freedom is not a thing. What does that mean? It means we're all Americans and we love the First Amendment. And I will even say as a chaplain in the U.S. Army, I I enforced the First Amendment. And the First Amendment is a good thing when you have a A society like ours with with God's innumerable. And how do you have peace? You, You just, you let everybody do their thing. But hear me. In an ultimate sense, God is not fine with religious pluralism. You either worship him or you're worshiping an idol. And what's a shame is that the thing that happened in Israel Happens in churches all the time. When it happens on a grand scale, we call it syncretism. It's when, it's when elements of folk, pagan religion work their way into Christian observance, and you have these weird things going on. And, and, and that we, we know is wrong, but understand, me, understand this. you To understand God's zeal here for religious purity... It does not matter how aesthetically pleasing something is. It does not matter how socially useful or psychologically helpful or personally meaningful something is. God does not share worship with something else. You either worship the living God in the way the living God has prescribed or you're worshiping an idol. It's that cut and dry and, viol- and the second thing, then, that flows from that is violations of the first table result in violations of the second table. There's God in the Ten Commandments gives presents them in two tables, so to speak. The first four commandments principally concern our duties to God himself, to God and his worship. The last six commandments, which is the majority of the 10 commandments by my math, reflect on how we are to interact with one another in light of the first four commandments. And invariably, what happens is that when you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and all your strength, you invariably do not love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see is there's this strange correlation between one's idols and the form that oppression and injustice takes. The things we get passionate about, the things we get angry about, the things that we serve, they affect us. And it results in a certain way of venting our sinful natures at other people. And so the Prophets condemn this, but we're called to check ourselves. Third, as I said previously, when we read of the nation of Israel, don't think of our nation, don't think of our state, think of the church. The old covenant people of Israel is the church in its infancy. So resist the temptation to think that these words of condemnation are principally or primarily directed to the world out there. Judgment begins with the household of God, therefore us. So let's examine our hearts. What are we doing? How are we prioritizing God and his truth and his worship? How are we prioritizing obedience to the second table in our midst? Fourth, in the Bible, covenantal thought flows all over the place. It's everywhere. It's the water in which the fish are swimming, brothers and sisters. And so with covenantalism, you have the notions of headship. Leadership matters, which is why consistently the prophets will address the capital cities like they're the entity themselves. They understand that out of the capital flows all the policy, all the cultural influence that's affecting the rest. Every person, every group that has cultural or political or religious clout is a leader in biblical covenantal thought, and they become the targets of the harshest criticism. Leadership matters. So again, we're not talking about the world out there, but, but specifically in our church, there are those of us who have positions of official leadership there are people who have been vested with authority and they're in leadership in a subordinate capacity running one of our ministries there are people who've just been here a long time and they have informal leadership because they have influence what are we doing with that in in the words of William Wallace our position was given to give the people freedom. So what are we doing with our position? And lastly, I want you to to not ignore all the doom and gloom that exists in in the minor prophets. And I don't want you just to hone in on the words of hope. But what I do want you to do is notice the intermingling. The intermingling of of gloom and glory. And I think therein lies lies a picture for us that God presents to us. How in in, in real life, in, in real time, in the midst of what comes our way, as God's people, we are to have an attitude and a disposition of hope because the Lord does give us hope in the midst of affliction, even when that affliction is divine discipline, and not all of our suffering is, but even when it is, I would say especially when it is, have hope, because God's purposes for you are for good. Jesus Christ came to save a people to present them to himself in holy arraignment. And the Holy Spirit is working out God's redemptive purposes for you in every circumstance you face. And so in that great final day, you will be presented in glorious perfection. So in the midst of all the doom and gloom of life, Of all of the trials and tribulations and troubles that surround us, have hope because that's what your Father wants for you. Let's pray.